The Fail On Podcast, episode 032. My internal saying about fear is fear is fake. And, you know, when you really look back at like, okay, what is the emotion of fear, right? Going back to caveman days, it's, it's this thing where your body, you know, your brain's trying to save, save you from basically death, right? That's why people are afraid of public speaking. Your brain is telling you, if you go up on that stage, you're going to die. So that's why we're so afraid of certain things. So when I have something that seems fearful, I just remind myself, hey, look, fear is fake. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes leveraging failure is not only the fastest way to learn, but is also the fastest way to start a business, quit your job, and live a life of absolute freedom. In a world that only likes to share successes, we dissect the struggle by talking to honest and vulnerable entrepreneurs, and this show is simply a platform for their stories. And today's story is of Stephen Christopher, a good buddy of mine who also lives in the Denver area. He is the founder of Sequest Digital Marketing, a web marketing agency that's absolutely crushing it right now. They tend to focus on more of the local service industry markets and help them grow businesses that may have been stagnant for a really long time. So think plumbing, construction, electrical, like those types of businesses that haven't had a huge online presence. Steven comes in to the rescue, helps implement online marketing and just helps them grow really rapidly when they haven't had that in a long time. So what he's doing is really cool. And before Sequest, Stephen also started several other financial businesses, including a massive failure in 2008 that we'll go into. But he uses his personal business experience to help other companies and business owners find growth and development through online marketing. We'll be discussing a huge failure that he experienced when his mortgage company completely tanked in 2008, why you should not burn the ships and quit your job until you have a profitable side project. Not sure I always agree. I kind of flip-flop on this a little bit, but I know for me personally, I like to burn the ships. But lastly, Stephen will discuss how he's learned to lean into his fears and tackle any obstacle that comes his way. And he used the example of overcoming his fear of public speaking in the episode, so make sure to stay tuned. But first, if you travel a lot like I do, you now need to pack less clothes than ever before. And it's for one simple reason only. It's a shirt from an innovative Toronto apparel company called Unbound Merino. They have clothes made out of merino wool, and this is amazing. You can wear it for months on end without ever needing to have it washed. Talk about a traveler's absolute dream. Never check a bag again. Check in at the show notes page for an exclusive fail-on discount that you won't get anywhere else. And if you'd like to stay up to date on all the fail-on podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. How did you first get into entrepreneurship? Do you actually remember the first time that, you know, for a lot of people, this is like a weird shift where you created something and somebody actually gave you money for it, mm-hmm. whether it's a product or a service? Yeah. I mean, so my first kind of stint with entrepreneurship was when I was about 14 and I started a mobile car detailing business. So, you know, technically I would go to people's houses, detail their cars and, you know, I'd become really good at that over the years. And so it wasn't an inexpensive service. I mean, it was like 120 bucks and this is what, 20 years ago. Well, the problem with the mobile detailing business is when you're 14, you can't drive. So 
luckily I was kind of a cute kid. I had to convince people to drive to my house, let me detail their car, and then they'd come back and pick it up. But yeah, and I ran that for, for actually a few years. Oh, nice. And that was, was really like my first entrepreneurship. So it wasn't like a one-off, like, you know, your parents' friends would, you know, do do you a favor and drop their car off. It was actually a legitimate thing where you actually made a little money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I made... I made money to buy a car or, mm. you know, the, the half of a car. I had to pay for half of my car when yep. I turned 16. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I worked for quite a few years getting ready for that. Was it just you kind of hustling on your own or did you have, did you hire an <laughs> you your buddies or? I didn't. Like when I look back at yeah. a lot of entrepreneur stories, right? Like they figured out how to get their friends to do stuff for them. <laughs> right. I didn't figure that one out until much <laughs> later in life. So it was just me hustling. And the cool thing was I realized that, or it was the first time I realized that I could control my income. You know, like if I wanted more money, all I had to do was go sell another car or work on a Saturday or, or whatever that was. And that was really cool. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. In terms of how you were kind of brought up and raised, were you raised by entrepreneurs or was it something you kind of, or is it something they encourage you to do with the car mobile detailing? Or was it something that you just saw a need for? Yeah. So I was not raised in an entrepreneurial family. My parents have had the same jobs for 30 something years and, you know, they're going to be retiring here in the next couple of years. My mom was a principal at a school. My dad was a nurse and eventually started running like a nursing department at a hospital. And so, no, they didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. And, you know, they were actually the first two people in both sides of their family to go to college. So that was you know, that was like their big step. And then, so my big step was entrepreneurship. Got it. Was it something that they encouraged you to do? Like, is it something you ran by them or you're just 14 years old and just kind of winging it on your own? Yeah, it kind of just happened. I got good at detailing cars and I enjoyed it. And then like somebody at church or something said, oh, you know, I'll pay you to do mine. And then that's how that kind of started. So it was never really a plan of any sort. And they, they encouraged it to the extent that it was like, Hey, go make some money so that now you can save up so that when you go to college, you have a little bit of cash in the bank and you can buy a car and that kind of thing. But it was never, they didn't really understand business. So it was never this thing of like, okay, well like do this and then do this and then get some marketing. Like, yeah, they just, they had no clue. And then when I went to college, they kind of looked at it and said, okay, well shut down your little fun play toy thing and get ready for the real world. They didn't even see it as like a real opportunity. Mm-hmm. But it, like you said, you were able to make a little money to pay for to pay for some things. So after you, that was through high school, I'm imagining, right? So after high school, you go, you do go to college. I did. Okay. Yeah. And from there, what did you study? What did did you take anything that you use in college <laughs> into entrepreneurship? Because I know for me, like I, well, four years of college was great. It actually, has zero relevance on anything I do today. Yeah. So I went to University of Florida in Gainesville oh, and I man. studied. I'm a Georgia fan. This is oh, man, painful. Oh, oh. <laughs> Both of my parents went to Florida State. So okay. you can oh, imagine how they yeah. felt. <laughs> nice. So yeah, I went to school. I started out as computer electrical engineering. So growing up, I would always build stuff. Like I would take, you know, remote control cars, take all the motors out, build other stuff like cordless drills and hook them all together. So my parents always told me, they're like, oh yeah, you're going to be a great engineer. So I just when it came time to go to college, I just assumed, well, I've been told all my life I should be an engineer. So that's what I went to school for. Got through about the first two years and realized like one day I looked around in my classes and I was like, these aren't the people that I want to be around for the rest of my life. And so I switched to business, 
because it was kind of easy. I was already most of the way there. What was it about the people on the engineering side? It was more of like the social aspect of it. You know, like they were very, very intelligent, really, really great and nice people, but Hard there to connect was no, to it. yeah, there just was no real social. I mean, I like, I mean, look at us. We're sitting here talking, you know, on a podcast. Most of the people in that room would never do something like this. Like I, I crave that connection with people. And so that just wasn't there. So graduated with a finance degree and a minor in economics, didn't really know what I was going to do. And I'm kind of the same way. Like the four years of college, they were a lot of fun. I learned a lot about how to deal with people, you know, a lot of those like real world type skills, but I took one, there was one class that I had in college that I still use today and it was Microsoft. So I learned like Outlook and Excel and nice. I could do all kinds of crazy <laughs> formulas and an Excel oh, spreadsheet. Great. And like, that was the only class that I actually went to pretty much every class while I was taking it for that semester. Got it. Yeah. It, it's funny how, how valuable like Excel is. If you know it well, you can save so much time with formulas and pivot tables and, yeah. and all that stuff. Let's go to what you would actually consider. So moving on past college, how did you first get into, I guess, real world entrepreneurship outside of the small, you know, projects that you had done in the past? What was your first real entry into creating a business? So I did a couple things after college. I worked for Merrill Lynch. I despised that, not because of Merrill Lynch, but yeah. just because of like working a real job and having like seven bosses. It just, it was not for me. So did a couple things, moved around a little bit and then in 2005, moved to Colorado. And that was the, about the time when the mortgage stuff was happening. So met a guy that did mortgages. He was like, hey, I'm going out on my own. You should come join me. So I went to go work for him because I was like, all right, this could be really fun. And then over the course of six or eight months, I slowly just became 50% owner of the company. And so we grew that until about 2008 which, you know, oh, most yeah. people know what happened then. So all, all, all the stories of everybody I talked to the podcast, all stories go south in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. That's a common theme, but yeah. <laughs> so the mortgage industry was really my first, I mean, like what I would call a real company, you know, where we had an office lease and we paid taxes and, you know, all of that type of stuff. Did you have stuff. to buy into that business where you had to put up cash or were you able to just... Yeah, I just kind of sweat equity, like nice. slowly worked my way in. I mean, so it's the easiest, lowest risk way to get into business, right? Yeah. 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 And the downside of it, I, you know, I fronted a lot of the credit that we were growing on. And then, and so in 2008, that a lot of that came back on me. So it still affects your credit today? No, it took me about, so it was just over a hundred thousand dollars in debt when we closed the doors because it kind of went south overnight, right? Like it went from making money on Monday to being out of business on Friday, pretty much. And so when they started calling for their money back, it was like, well, I got nothing. So right. <laughs> you can call all you want, yeah. but yeah, it probably took me about four or five years to rebuild that, slowly pay it off and then rebuild my credit after that. Okay. So you actually did end up paying a hundred K off. I paid a majority of it. Yeah. I mean, I did some, I negotiated some of it and then I looked, you know, back and forth at like, okay, is it, do I do bankruptcy? Do I not? Like what's the long term? And I waited longer than I should have probably to make a lot of those decisions because they're scary. Oh yeah. And so I was like, all right, just sweep it under the rug. Let's see what happens like next week. I'll deal with it yeah. later. It's just stress, right? You just want to brush it under the rug and not yeah. deal with it if you don't have to. Yeah. So it's interesting. So at that point, just looking back, is there anything that you guys could have done differently to avoid what happened? Yeah. I mean, so I was young at the time. And since it was kind of my first real business, one of the big lessons I took out of that was learning to look down the road. 
because, you know, the mortgage industry crashed, right? Like there was really nothing we could have done about that. But there was a lot of things that I could have prepared for differently, like, you know, looked at the writing on the wall months and months before it actually happened and then started to kind of pivot or, you know, at least find a different way to market us or find a different segment of the market that maybe would be more resilient because we worked with a lot of investors. So, you know, a lot of our clients had like a million dollars cash in the bank and we couldn't even get them a hundred thousand dollar loan on an investment property. So we could have been more intelligent about what are our offerings based on what's coming down the road. And then, you know, that would have been great because then we would have taken advantage of when everybody else was out of business. Now there's, you know, a quarter of as many mortgage companies as there was and people still need mortgages. Right. Right. So with that whole situation, obviously the credit was under your name. Did your business partner at the time not have to deal with any of the the finance issues or was that all on your shoulders? Or, and if so, why was that? Yeah. I mean, so since everything was kind of financed under my credit because he didn't really have the ability to do it and we were like, Hey, we're growing. Who cares? I mean, we got cash coming in, like, this is awesome. And so again, just lack of experience, right? Like lack of forethought when that I should have been growing on cash and not doing it the way we did. I mean, when we, when it went under, like nobody had money, me or him, like we didn't plan, you know, we weren't getting ready for like life. We were kind of like playing. And so yeah, he just didn't have any money. And since it wasn't tied to his credit, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't malicious or anything like that. It was just, these are the facts. He doesn't have any money. I don't have any money. It's tied to my credit. Like, what are you going to do? And it took him, it took him quite a few more years to recover than it did me. Got it. So coming out of that business, 2008, when all the shit hits the fan, what's, I mean, how are you feeling at that point? Like, were you just devastated? this is your first business. Now you're in a shit ton of debt. What was your, I guess, how are you feeling at that time? And then what were your thoughts on how are you going to pull yourself out of that? Yeah. So actually time, time out. So I'm just looking at the, your little board behind oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. It says failure is a step forward, which I love. It's awesome. I love it, man. And you can tell kind of how old that is too. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> but anyways. So, you know, it's like going through a breakup, right? Like you have days where you're pissed. You have days where you're sad. You have days where you're depressed. You have days where you feel great and you maybe don't really know why. And it was kind of like that. So it was just like going through that process of like a, a breakup, a separation. And so the cool thing that I notice when I look back, and this is a good lesson that I have to constantly remind myself of, especially now in life that I'm running, you know, a pretty successful company is that even when you're at the bottom or when you're at the bottom and you don't have anything to lose, you just, a lot of stuff just doesn't matter, right? Like you realize that if you can make it out of that, you can make it out of anything. So like if I ever get concerned about my company now, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to, I'm going to wake up one day and all of our clients are going to fire us all on the same day and everybody's going to quit, right? Like obviously that's never going to happen, but I go back to this and I remember the times when I had no money, you know, I was living at a buddy's house, like rent free and it didn't really matter that much. Like things were still okay. I found a way to eat. You know, we found a way to drink dollar beer and, and still have a really good time. And when I look back on that, like those were some of the most fun times that I had when I had nothing. And so that's a really cool lesson that I learned out of it. But I mean, kind of, I guess more specifically to answer your question, like, yeah, there was good days and there was like really fucking bad days, but I just, 
That's actually when I found personal development stuff. I remember I got a book called The Power of Focus by Brian Tracy and started reading it. And I was like, wait, there's actually something to this. Maybe these guys aren't just trying to sell books. Like maybe there's actually good content in there. And so when you don't have any money, you don't have TV, you can't really afford to go anywhere. So you have a lot of free time. So that's when I just started reading a ton of books. Books are an expensive, easy investment, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's when I found like used books on Amazon. And, you know, I was like, for wait, for 60 cents, I can buy that book? Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm in. <laughs> no, it's not, yeah, it, it actually is crazy. But just on your point of, I think it's a really good lesson in terms of thinking back on how, like, how bad things were in the past and how, or how relatively bad, right? Because you had built a business, you had money coming in. But then you look back and, you know, you think about like when you're at, when coming out of college, like just had that first job, like you made way less money. Like for me anyways, I think, I think about this a lot. And when Jack and I first got married, actually, we were, we actually, we, <laughs> this place is disgusting. We lived in like this crazy dump with like with a, with a single lady and her child. And we had literally this bedroom, no bed. We just slept on a cot. And like when things are bad now, we're like, you know, we get frustrated and stuff and we just think back to that cot. Like <laughs> things are amazing. But the crazy part is when we were on the cot, we were, we were super happy. Like it was the small things. We would go get takeout, come home, sit on our cot, watch our Netflix and have dinner together. And it was, it was just as great then as it was, as it is now. You know what I mean? So it's a good lesson because you get stressed now for anybody out there, like as stressed as you are, chances are times have been way worse and you got through it just fine. So just on that point, how do you look at, how do you assess risk when you're looking at new opportunities, whether it's a new business venture, whether it's an extension of your current business, a new vertical, whatever it may be, how do you look at opportunities, assess risk and decide whether or not to move forward? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. It's actually something that I'm really focused on right now is assessing that risk. You know, we have a, a about a 15 person company. So now I have 15 people's livelihoods kind of that I'm responsible for. So my assessment of risk is a lot different now, but as I ask a lot of people, like we have a lot of very similar, you know, mentors, like we talk about Daryl Hicks and, you know, some of those guys, those are the people that I'm asking this exact same question to right now. And so one of the things that's come out of that is you have to remember what did get us here. And so a lot of that is taking those risks and leaning into uncomfort and just knowing that most of the time things are going to work out okay, but even if they don't, it's not the end of the world. So, I mean, specifically assessing it, it's just, you know, looking at the numbers, does this make sense? And then setting kind of a cap like, okay, hey, we're going to spend $20,000 to try to start up this line or, you know, we're going to hire somebody for for four months and see if it works out. And then just knowing when to say when you know, like with gambling, right? Like a lot of people, like you never know when to stop. You got to have so, your number, right? <laughs> yeah. So like, exactly. Yeah. So have your number in mind and then say, okay, cool. We're going to give this four months or we're going to give it this amount of time. And then when it's over, it's over and just work your ass off during that time to make sure you gave it everything. That way, you know, you didn't leave anything on the table and you're not sitting there second guessing like, oh, maybe I should have stayed in another month or yeah. Sure. And obviously with this being the fail on podcast, how do you actually define failure? That's a great question. I, I saw that and I started thinking about it. And I think the best way for me to define it is when something doesn't work out the way you thought it would, and then there's a lesson in it, right? So like failure to me is a, is a key word that I look for an opportunity. So like if I failed at something, it means it didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to, 
but there's some sort of an opportunity or a learning lesson in that that I can now take and you know put it in my little bank, and then maybe later down the line I'll need that exact same lesson. But yeah, it just means it didn't work out the way that I expected it to. Are there specific examples you can kind of think back on that where you you basically did that where it was it didn't work out like you planned, but you took a learning lesson from it, you put it in the bank, and then moving down the road you're able to reflect back on it, whether subconsciously or consciously, and it made a difference moving forward. I mean, the biggest one is the mortgage company, right? And not and not looking around the corner. So like in our in our vivid vision document and in So that's that's a lesson right there. You <laughs> you didn't have a vivid vivid yeah. vision back then. Now you're like, okay, I need to actually look into the future a little mm-hmm. bit. So like one of my one of my strengths that I bring to the company is the ability to see around corners. And so when everybody asks, you know, everybody within our company has their roles and the things they're great at, well, that's mine. And that all came from the mortgage company. So now when our competition is just kind of like doing whatever it is that they've been doing for the last three or four years, I'm looking around corners going, okay, what's going to change? You know, what's happening in our client's market? What's happening with the economy? Like, are we going to have you know, I, I watch the economy a little bit more than I, than I used to now. So yeah, just looking around the corner and saying, okay, what's really coming next? Because as entrepreneurs, especially as young companies, we get so busy working in the business every day and we have to force, well, at least I initially had to force myself a lot more to take, you know, a couple days a month and just kind of think like, just think at a much higher level. Right. So with Sequest Marketing, you started that in what, 2014? Yeah. So Sequest started in 2014. I had owned and started another digital agency before that in 2009. So I was going to ask, what's that gap between 2008, 2014? So it was a a different agency in 2009. What happened with that one? So I started that with a friend. So we were 50-50 business partners. And then from 2009 to 2014, we grew that. So we both had jobs and then we did this on the side. And we did it just kind of for fun to bring in a little bit of extra cash. We both knew a decent amount about SEO and marketing. So we were like, hey, if we just pick up a couple of clients, we'll make, you know, maybe an extra thousand bucks or two a month, and then we can afford to take our girlfriends to Mexico or on vacation. And so, you know, that turned into three clients and five clients and then 10, and then we had to hire somebody. And then before we knew it, it started to turn into a real company. And then we just had different ideas of what you do when you become successful. So mine was you work harder and you reinvest in the business. And he just had different, he wanted to do different things. You know, he wanted to relax and kind of enjoy it and like let the business run. And so, you know, nothing wrong with either one, but we didn't ask the right questions up front when we were starting the business of like, Hey, what do you want to do when it becomes successful? So ended up, I ended up selling my 50% to him after about five months of me trying to buy him out. And that all happened at the very last minute. And it was like, okay, wait, what am I going to do now? So the next day I started Sequest. Katie and I came up with the name, like sitting at a Chili's, I think on the back of a napkin. And <laughs> nice. within 24 hours, we had a logo a website and, you know, back off to the races again. And then it was just me sitting at a desk like, okay, let's do this again. That's awesome. Though. That, I mean, that's obviously shows fast implementation, right? Which is, which is huge. A lot of people I think get, and I want to hop back to, I eventually want to do hop back to, to kind of how you got started in that last business. But I think it's an important lesson that a lot of people overanalyze and almost get paralyzed by 
oh, what's the perfect logo? What's the perfect business name? And they, they do all these things that just kind of put off actually starting the business and going to find how to make revenue and how to, how to generate dollars. So is that something that you've always done, been like a fast implementer? Or has it taken you time over the years to, to start being more of an action taker? No, I've always been pretty quick. You know, I just, I, one of my friends and mentors has a quote that says, act faster than your inner critic. So basically take action before you have time to talk yourself out of it. And then you can kind of figure out the little pieces of like, okay, wait, maybe I need to go this way a little more or that way a little bit more. But I mean, even thinking back to like the auto detailing and stuff, I mean, it just made sense at the time. So I was like, all right, I'll just go buy some car wax and go wash this car tomorrow. And then like, it just snowballed from there. And same with the mortgage company. I was just, I was working for cores and he asked me about it and I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Like no plan, no idea how we were going to make money or anything at first. And so, yeah, and it kind of ties back in with that lesson where now I have to be conscious to make sure I'm still doing that to some extent, as opposed to slowing us down, you know, by like, by overanalyzing and stuff like right. that. So just to kind of hop back in the timeline a little bit. So 2009, you got a job kind of right out of the gate, right? When everything Okay, just you had to pay rent. You just needed to do something, right? Yeah, I took a job making like $20,000 a year doing sales for a data recovery company. And then right after that, I also got a part-time job working for a law firm doing like some marketing for them. Like, So I, I got to take people to events and dinners. And I was like, wait, you're going to pay me and you're going to let me go eat and do fun <laughs> stuff? I was like, yeah, I'm in. Like, <laughs> Easy decision. Yeah. So at that time, I'm guessing... So you started the marketing on the side, which I think this is a big issue for a lot of people that I talk to is they get really excited about whatever venture they want to start and they just want to burn the ships, go do it full on, not having a job and just give all their attention and effort to to the business. And I get varying from, from all the podcast guests, I get varying beliefs a lot of people say that's irresponsible to just jump fully into a business. It's putting people at risk. If you want to start it, start it from, you know, like Gary Vee says, start, do it from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. What are your thoughts on assessing risk in this, in this case, whether, you know, where you have a full-time job, but you have a business that you want to start, do you work on it on the side or do you just burn the ships and go all in on it? I mean, I would say do it on the side you know, entrepreneurship, you generally work twice as much as you think you're going to, and you make half as much money. So, you know, you can, I remember doing this with my past businesses, like you create these spreadsheets and you spend hours on them. Like, oh man, if I only had five clients, we could make this much money. Well, cut that in half at least, because that's the max you're going to make doing it. So especially for new entrepreneurs, I would say, take it slow, you know, a year goes by really, really quick. So there's nothing wrong with like taking a year, working at your job, working a little bit of extra on the side. And here's what a lot of people I think miss about having a job is they miss all these opportunities to learn about how business works. And, you know, just looking around your company or your, you know, wherever it is that you do work, even if it's a, a miserable situation, learn from that, like figure out like, why is it a miserable situation? Like, how are people being managed? Ask your coworkers, like, Hey, what would make you happier in a job? Because for the most part, the actual product or the service you offer in a business, it, 
it's not the most important thing. It's how you run the company. You know, I mean, if you're going to have a team of people, how do you make them happy? How do you make them want to come to work and be their best every day? That's what makes winning companies win. And so take the time to learn from the place where you're at, whether it's great or whether it's terrible. And I've always been, so the law firm that I mentioned, right, that I worked for in 2009, I still work for them. So like, I mean, I run a 15 person company and I was always just upfront and honest with them. And so now we do like, I do some very specific things for them because they haven't been able to find somebody to replace that. So by being open and honest about it, now we have this other source of revenue and it's a huge opportunity for connecting with the stuff that I do for them. So I would say, start it, you know, start it on the side, kind of get the basics figured out so that now you have a nice platform to build on. And then, and then start assessing that risk. Like, okay, cool. You got a little bit of money coming in, have a set time, say, okay, I'm going to leave in six months or 12 months, or I'm going to leave when I can make $5,000 a month for myself and replace my income. And then just make sure that while you're making money on the side, don't get used to that lifestyle because you know now you have two incomes, right? Exactly. A lot of people do that. And then now they can't leave the job and then they get burned out. And then now they're doing a disservice to that person. You end up burning bridges. and Totally. And I think it's a, good, it's a really good lesson what you mentioned about just kind of being more aware like within your current job of how that, not, not just of your job and how your department runs, but how the business as a whole actually operates. Like, like you said, if it's a terrible job, why is it terrible? What, who, you know, where's the ball dropping somewhere along the line? And I think people just go to their jobs, almost really narrow focused, right? They're there because they're going to get a paycheck. They have their specific KPIs, specific responsibilities. They don't really look at the big picture. And I think for somebody that wants to get into business, it's super important to look at how the business runs as a whole. Like, I wish I would have gotten that advice when I was in my nine to five job, because you know, I was that guy, like we just said, that was just super narrow focus. I'm there for my job. I'm there for the paycheck. Don't like the job, but I could have gotten a lot more out of it had I had that, you know, perspective of let's actually look at this as like, how are these people running this business? It would have been super valuable. So I think for anybody listening, that's in a nine to five job right now, just start being more aware of, of how the business is running as a whole, the good, the bad, what you do differently. And I think it's a valuable lesson that you can do without having to even start a business, right? Just start taking inventory. Yeah. And it makes it more fun too, right? Like if you're paying attention, if you're doing something other than like your little KPIs with your head down, it kind of, it opens up a a whole new world of things to explore and look around like, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Like I never knew why, you know, Sally does that or Jim does that. And it just makes it a little bit more fun to be there while you're there. Exactly. It's learning. So within Sequis, Building that up, you know, you started the next day. What's been the biggest struggle from, you know, when you're making that logo and creating the name with Katie to, to where you are now? What's been the hardest struggle for you? I mean, initially it was, it was a struggle. Like the first three or four months was a struggle because I went from having, you know, a company with a team and like staff doing all the work to going back to doing it all on my own again. So that was kind of, that was tough. So my first goal was, okay, work my ass off so that I can hire somebody else. And I ended up, I hired somebody pretty quick to help, help that. So that was a little bit of a struggle, but. So you sold your 50% to your ex-partner. Did that give you enough cushion to, to live comfortably for a little bit while you were able to build this up? Yeah. It, so I could have done one, I could have done one or a couple of things. I could have one lived 
comfortably and like slowly started something, or I basically just reinvested that and, you know, to get it up and running faster. Cause I already knew, I already knew what I needed to do differently. So I had, I spent about two weeks from the day I started Sequest until I actually started working to just say, okay, I'm going to go through my whole old company and say, what would I do differently? What was working well? What structures do I want to have in place, you know, now that maybe I didn't. So that was a really looking back, that was way more intelligent than I would give myself credit for normally. Um, So I would highly recommend like take that time to just really think through, you know, what you want to do differently. It was very worth it. And I mean, nowadays, I mean, the biggest probably like struggle for me is, is rapid scale. So like, you know, I mean, it seems like every month we're hiring more people. And so it's this paying attention to that risk management of, okay, you know, where are we within our budget? When do we push? When do we go over our budget? When do we go under our budget? You know, how much cash do we keep in the bank? Like keeping up with that because it changes so fast. That's probably the biggest thing. Like my biggest struggle right now is in that unknown of like, how fast do you scale? So I, you know, a lot of our mutual friends, I'm asking them, you know, they're doing 10 to 20 million. So I'm saying, okay, what did you want to do differently at like 5 million and 3 million and like eight, like what would you have done differently? So yeah, I'm getting, getting a lot of good help there. Got it. What's your biggest weakness just in terms of operating the business? Like, you know, what's, one, where's your where's your strength at? I know we talked about vision yesterday a little bit, and that's kind of how you see your role is looking around the corner. What are you really weak at that you're still involved with? Because so, it's you know a lot of people are weak at stuff, but they just delegate that's out of the way. Somebody else is handling that's that's their strength. But what are you weak at that you still are involved with? So yeah, I mean, like my weakness is following process over and over and over. So I love creating it, right? Like I can see okay, hey, here's how we need to do this. And then this will work really well. And the people will be happy that are responsible for it. But as soon as I create it, like I'm the first one to not follow it. So <laughs> I try to get myself out of that, those areas as fast as I can. So right now, one of the things, so I'm great with people. I'm great with, you know, I guess we'll call it sales, but I'm terrible at following the process. So, you know, in order to do a good job at selling, it's constantly following up with your prospects, constantly nurturing them, lead generation, all of that. Well, to me, that's really, really boring. So I just want to talk to the person on the phone and say, okay, cool. Here's what we can do. We can help. Do you want, you know, do you want to go with us or not? But that whole nurturing process is really boring for me. And so that's, so I'm basically getting rid of that this quarter. So we're in second quarter and our goal is, you know, we're hiring a salesperson because I know that that is not my strength at all. Yep. Yep probably not the best use of your time either. No, it's definitely not. I mean, it's better than, you know, I guess sweeping the floors, but. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you guys actually make money? What are your different revenue streams? You have 15 employees. I'm just trying to get an idea of kind of how the business looks as a whole at a high level. What are your different departments and what's everybody responsible for? And yeah, what are your different revenue streams? So we used to call ourselves a full service digital agency. You know, we wanted to do everything, right? And then about a year, year and a half ago, I was looking at it with my operations manager and she was like, why are we doing like, you know, I don't know, whatever these little services are. Like we're not making money on them. They always cause problems. We're not really great at it. And so we got rid of a lot of things. And now we specifically do not call ourselves a full service digital agency. So we focus in SEO, search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, like AdWords, even getting more into the social media stuff and web design. So, you know, it's the three biggest pieces of 
of creating success for our clients, right? So everything is either focused on driving ideal clients to their website or making their website better so that it converts more. And then we have a couple little services that we add on, like we'll do some digital branding, but only if somebody's working in one of our three core services, we won't offer those as just standalone services. Everything has to tie back to driving the right traffic or converting it into a call or a lead. Who's your ideal client? What type of business? What size of business? Yeah. So we work, um, this is another great lesson that I learned a couple years ago is, you know, find niches. And so we just, we used to work with anybody and everybody and we would get these really big clients and like, we didn't really know how to deal with them that well. And they weren't our ideal client. And so once we got clear on that, the business really started to grow even faster. So we do local service companies. So we work a ton with home service businesses like plumbing, HVAC, electrical, those types of things. We also do like dental, private medical, legal. So any local service business, that's really what we're fantastic at. So things, you know, getting people to show up on Google Maps and the whole, you know, like now with voice search on phones, you know, like find a plumber near me, really getting businesses to show up for searches like that. How did you find that niche? Was that part of your grand plan in the beginning when you're <laughs> crawling it up at Chili's on a napkin? Or what, is that something that's evolved over time where you've really kind of narrowed in on what you guys have really done well with? Yeah. I mean, based on your smile, I think you know the answer <laughs> to that question. So yeah, we, we definitely didn't start out to go after you know plumbers and HVAC guys or companies. And so I actually met a guy who, Mike Aguilero, who runs a, a company, a $30 million plumbing company in New Jersey. And then he started a coaching business for this. I met him at a, a speaker's training camp in Boulder. And that was like late 2014. So, you know, it had only been back in business for like six months and we just stayed in touch. And eventually he flew me out and I got to meet some of the people he was coaching. And like, that's, that's how we started in that, in that niche. And then we just, we got really good at it. And now, you know, now we get the phone calls of, you know, hey, we need help. We heard you guys are the ones to, to do it. And it's, it brings brings me to a good point because we talked yesterday about how what you guys do is drive leads for your companies, but you don't drive leads for your own company. Yeah. So how how have you been able to grow like you have without doing any marketing for your own business? Yeah, I mean, it's reputation is really what it comes down to. I mean, we. I intentionally, you know, like if you look back at my journal or even a lot of the notes on my desk at the office, it, it's very intentional to become so good. You can't be ignored. So that's what I've written everywhere. And so that's what we put our focus on. So instead of just driving leads, you know, for us, I was just, I changed it. I just said, let's become so good that we can't be ignored. And so now, you know, between referrals, people that are using us, I mean, our clients are our best salespeople. And, you know, that's what's gotten us to here. Do you have anything like actually, like a process actually built out specifically to drive referrals or is it more of just organic? It happens. Yeah. So we're in the middle of building out something that's a little bit more set in stone as far as the process goes. Up until now, it's just been, I knew that it was important to follow up. And so we created, we just created these little touch points, right? Where every once in a while you'd ask for something. So like if, if a client emailed and said, Hey, you know, we had our best month ever, then that that's like a little trigger, right? It's like, Hey, well, you know, if you know anybody else that might benefit from this, we'd love a referral and we'll give you half a month for free. So we had some of it built, but it wasn't, it's not real great. And so that's something that we're focused on right now is creating an actual process around that. 
when you look back from 14 car mobile detailing to up till now, obviously you went through the, the tough times in 2008. What's been outside of the 2008, what's been the biggest struggle in terms of getting to where you are today across the board, whether, whether personal, professional business relationships, whatever, like, I, I guess take us, take us back to the lowest point you've been. So probably it's happened a couple times, probably like the kind of that low point. And I think most entrepreneurs go through it at different, maybe at different levels. You know, some is a lot, some are a lot worse. Some aren't quite as bad, but it's personal. It, it always comes back to personal. And it's kind of that, like, for me, it's believing that I am enough and that I deserve what I'm creating, you know? So like when things are going really well, I have to be careful because sometimes my mind will start slipping and like, oh man, like stuff is going to go down. Like you don't deserve this, like imposter syndrome, that type of thing. And there's been a couple of times where that, where I'll let that get the best of me. And so for a few months, it's just like miserable, right? Like every time I, when I wake up in the morning, it's just like, oh man, like I'm not even going to go and almost kind of like looking back at it from a, a 30,000 foot different perspective, it's essentially like self-sabotage, right? I mean, it's like, Hey, I don't feel like I deserve this. So I start doing things that would sabotage it. And I've just learned over time that that's going to be, that's going to come, you know, it's, it's going to come and go. So one of my coaches always talked about reaction time. So just constantly shortening the reaction time. So now what used to take three months, you know, might take three days and it's just being really, just being accepting of it. Like, Hey, look, we all have these feelings and that's okay. And just getting perspective on it. Like I really am doing a good job and I really do deserve this. And, you know, every, every big entrepreneur I talk to struggles with something along those lines. So, I mean, that's, that's my biggest struggle. When you're in those ruts, how did you find the awareness to actually, actually realize that that's what you're doing? Like self-sabotage because I totally relate to what you just said in terms of going through these ruts, but even now, like it's still hard for me to pinpoint like why, like like what is driving me to feel like this? Is it what I'm actually doing with my business? Is it my relationships? Like what actually is it? So how are you able to find the awareness of that it was self sabotage? So I think you know Gary Vaynerchuk right says self awareness is like the number one skill, and so just once I realized that it was honing that skill. So it was honing in, you know, through mindfulness practice, meditation, and just kind of being aware and doing a lot of journaling. So I would journal through those whole times and then I would journal as I was coming out of it. So now I can go back and reference. So now if I, if I start to see a trigger, like I'm starting to feel a certain way, now I have previous experiences where I can go to the end of that whole experience and then read, okay, cool. Here's what I did last time. And sometimes it'll take a couple of days because you know, you fight it, right? You're like, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to feel better. I'm going to wallow in my misery. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like a roadmap of, of being able to get out of that situation. So I just started documenting those. It's like, Hey, if I feel this way, here's what's happening. And then here's how I got out of it last yeah. time. Have you noticed trends on what it's actually been that, that gets you out of those ruts? So yeah, actually a lot of it is getting some sort of a result. So it's forcing myself to take action and then seeing the result. And that like proves like, oh yeah, wait, I do actually really know what I'm doing and, and it is okay. I mean, you know, kind of like going to the gym, right? Like if you, 
I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but like sometimes like when I'm on a not so good health kick and I tend to want to go to the gym even less, right? Like you want to eat, you know, like you want to eat pizza again and drink beer. And then like, you're like, well, just one more day and it just snowballs from there. Well, as soon as you go to the gym for a couple of days, you start to feel better. And then you're like, oh, cool. Like you kind of pick that habit back up. So you get some sort of a result. Like as soon as I'm sore, I'm like, oh man, like I'm not going to eat the pizza today because I feel good. So getting some sort of a result. And I actually journal a lot about this. And like while I'm doing sales, right? Like I, I don't really enjoy that whole process, but what I tell myself when I get behind is based on past experiences, it only takes two days to get out of a, out of a rut. And so for two days I commit to myself, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to follow the process. I already know it works. And instead of like my brain used to tell me, oh man, this is going to take like two months to get out of this thing. It's two days. And so for two days, I just focus on that. Even though I'm halfway miserable when I'm doing it at the end of those two days, like for example, sales, right? Like if I don't want to follow the process every day at the end of those two days, like we will have generally landed another client or, you know, gotten at least five or 10 really good prospects. And I'm like, oh yeah, it only took two days. Like it's all good. It's a good reminder. So obviously this is the fail on podcast with the whole idea of pushing people to take action and get outside their comfort zone, at least stretch the comfort zone a little bit. So they're getting comfortable being in uncomfortable situations. Like we talked about our mutual friend yesterday, UJ Ramdas, creator of the five minute journal, how he, he said something to you that really shifted your perspective on it. You mind sharing that? Yeah. He, um, you know, he said, constantly look for opportunity to lean into uncomfort. And, you know, I've heard it a bunch of times, but for some reason, when he said it, like I heard it at the right moment, you know, from the right person. And so I've just kind of adopted more of that. And I mean, he used it as an example of like, look, I just, I constantly look for ways to be uncomfortable to the extent of, look, if, if you're walking down the street and you're wearing shoes and it would be uncomfortable without them, like take your shoes off. You know, he was talking about this time he was in Boulder, like it started raining. He was walking around. Everybody starts kind of running for the, you know, running for cover. And he's like, hmm, yeah, this is uncomfortable. So he just walked in the rain and he said within a couple of minutes, he's like, man, this is the most, it's an amazing experience. So always looking for those ways to lean into uncomfort. Like I kind of label all of my years with like a, a theme. And so 2017 is live curiously uncomfortable. So it's just always looking for uncomfort. But yeah, UJ was, that was perfect timing. So that's great. <laughs> so on that note, um, that's cool. That that's your theme this year. What's the last thing you did to really push your comfort zone and get outside of it? I had a feeling that question would probably come up. And so I started thinking about it a little bit and it, it's hard to pick one. Like I, I do something every day or at least every couple of days. I mean, like one of the things that I did that I thought it was just going to be purely fun, but actually ended up being really uncomfortable and being cool is I did this racing school out in Vegas a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, Oh man, like, you know, I can, I can drive fast cars. We got this. And I get there. And when you start realizing you're going like 120 miles an hour around a corner, three inches from gravel, <laughs> like, man, I'm like white knuckled. Like I couldn't think about anything. And it ended up being a very uncomfortable experience the whole rest of the first day. And so, and then the second day was amazing, right? Like I was, you know, you're pushing myself further and further, but like I said, it was, it, it was set out to just be something that was fun. I didn't even think it was going to be uncomfortable, but when I got there, I was like, Oh man, like how cool is this? I found an opportunity to be uncomfortable here, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, just every day, just looking for some little thing 
to be uncomfortable. Like, I don't know if you follow Tim Ferriss too much, but you know, like lay down in the middle of the street for 10 seconds or, you know, just stare at somebody in the eyes until they look away first. Like <laughs> right, I'm always looking right. for little things to do. Like you mentioned the Starbucks thing, you know, ask for 10% off. I do that all the time and half the time they'll give it to you. Yeah, like crazy. Starbucks actually right. has a 10% like <laughs> right. button or something back there. Like maybe after he said that, but yeah. yeah, just look for little things. Like if I, if I think to myself, Oh, I don't want to do that. It probably means I should do it. Mm, I like that. So we've talked a lot about getting outside your comfort, comfort zone, struggle, anxiety, fear, how to best approach it. What's the absolute best way that you found to approach the possibility of failure the fear that's associated with it and potential embarrassment. Mm. So I have a, like my internal saying about fear is fear is fake. And you know, when you really look back at like, okay, what is the emotion of fear, right? Going back to caveman days, it's, it's this thing where your body, you know, your brain's trying to save, save you from basically death, right? That's why people are afraid of public speaking. Your brain is telling you, if you go up on that stage, you're going to die. So that's why we're so afraid of certain things. So, when I have something that seems fearful, I just remind myself, Hey, look, fear is fake. And kind of what makes sense, you know, does it make sense to do this or to do that? And when you remove that whole fear piece, it makes the decision-making a lot easier. And so kind of the self-awareness, right? Like just knowing that, Hey, this isn't really a real emotion. So like, I'll talk to my brain. I'll say, Hey, you know, look, I appreciate you looking out for me and trying to keep me from hurting myself, but I also know that this emotion is fake. So, you know, thanks for trying to help me out here. And it makes it a little bit easier to just step into and do that thing. And then, I mean, as far as embarrassment goes, I mean, I, I've been embarrassed so many times in life. Like it just doesn't <laughs> even matter anymore. Right. Like, sure. <laughs> so I was actually reading the community Rolodex for mastermind talks. And I saw that you used to be really scared of talking to a group of people. Yeah. So on this note, how, how did you basically do what you're just preaching in terms of getting over that fear? Yeah, that's funny. I, I forgot about that. So in like 2012 with my last digital company, we won fastest growing company in Colorado. And all we had to do was go to this like awards lunch. You know, there's about 300 people there and get up on stage and accept an award and you get like 30 seconds to just say thank you. Right. So the whole time I was <laughs> driving down there, like when we found out that we were definitely in the top three. And so we knew we were going to have to go on stage. I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So like I started <laughs> writing, like I didn't even talk to, uh, you know, my fiance Katie at the time now was girlfriend back then, but like for the whole morning, I was just like, I was like, don't talk to me. Like I got to figure out this speech. Like, what am I going to say? Like I was replaying it in my mind over and over practice this little speech the whole way down there got down there. We ended up winning first place. So we go up on stage to accept the award and I have my little note card down, like I'm shaking, get up on stage and then like look, look around in the audience. And all I could do was lean forward and say, thank you. And then haul ass <laughs> off the stage. Like it was so, yeah, it was just mind blowing to me how it all worked. And then, so in that moment is that's when I said, okay, this is ridiculous, right? Like I got to learn how to be comfortable speaking to people. Like uh, you know, I'm great with people one-on-one, -on -one, but I never knew why it was such a big issue for me. And that's when I went and did a public speaking, like a training course with Joe Williams, who's like one of Tony Robbins master trainers for 30 something or 20 something years. But it was in that moment, I was like, all right, I got to get over this thing. And so I looked for a resource to do it. And then that's actually where I met Mike Aguilero. That's how we got into the plumbing stuff for our, so, you know, all these things tie together 
when you get out of your comfort zone. And I even remember the first day at that speaker training course, there's only 12 people in the room. And so you had to get up in front of the room and say like a 60 second thing about you. Dude, like I just blacked out. Like, I don't know what I said. (laughs) And I just remember at the end of doing it, everybody was staring at me like, and so I must've just said something and left it hanging out in the middle of nowhere. Like, I don't even remember it. So if I remember correctly, I think Joe at the end of the class, he was like, Hey, he's like, Hey, you definitely got most improved. So (laughs) that's awesome. So what would you recommend for somebody that actually wants to get over that fear, whether they're talking you know, to large groups or just people with their work, whether it's a conference, like conference room where mm-hmm. you're doing a meeting and you're terrified of, of speaking. What's your, obviously outside of going to like a course or a class, maybe that is the best option. Any other options or tips, tricks after you've done that, that people can implement kind of like on the, on the go? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I, if you really want to do it, I would recommend going somewhere because I learned so much more than just like, we really didn't even talk about the fear at that class. He just, he taught you how to be a really effective communicator. And then the fear kind of dissipated based on the comfort and and practice. But I mean, initially, like when I talk to a room now, cause I remember after that, the first time I like actually got up on stage and did like, I spoke at Hallow Rod's event and you know, that was kind of like, you, you still, I still get nervous, right? Like that's okay. But just remembering that you're not, you're not talking to this mass of people, you're talking to individuals. And so like, just pick a couple people out of the audience and talk to them and, you know, connect with those people. Like who cares if you kind of look creepy, like you're just picking out, you know, three people, but it's a one-on-one conversation. There just happens to be more than one on the other side, but just connect with people individually. And like, so like we shoot a ton of video now and I'm teaching my staff how to be comfortable with doing that. I just tell them, Hey, just pick an avatar, like create an avatar. So even if you're in a big room or if you're doing a video, just say, okay, I'm talking to Jim. He's 35 years old. He has three kids and he really needs to know what I have to say because I can help him have a better life. And so when you make it not about you and you make it about them, a lot of that fear will go away. And so that was really helpful for me. I mean, I still do it today. If I'm talking to a group of, I don't know, you know, more than probably 30 or 40 people, I just pick a couple people, create an avatar, and then just make sure to remember, like, I'm here to help them. And, you know, and then just remember, man, that, like, look, especially in a big group, everybody wants you to succeed. You know, most of us are not politicians and people that, you know, we don't have haters out there, really. Everybody in that room wants you to succeed. That's why they're there. They're taking their time out of their day to come listen to you. They want you to win. So, you know, they're not out there to get you. And everybody's afraid of it, right? Like even some of the best public speakers we know, like they still get, you know, butterflies. Like, I mean, you know, Hal Elrod, every time before he speaks, you know, I've seen him a couple of times, like, you know, he's kind of like antsy and he's like, yeah, he's like, I got the little butterflies. That's good. That's, you know, he he looks for it. Yeah. I was talking to, I mentioned this a few times, but I was was talking to, you know, Giovanni Marcico. Yeah. So I love how he frames it because he, whenever he gets that feeling, of butterflies, whatever it may be. He used to look at it as like, oh man, I'm like super anxious. I have anxiety. Now he looks at it as like, oh, the butterflies are here. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. It's more of like an excitement, right? It's like, oh, I get to, I get to do something exciting because I have that feeling. It's a cool way to frame anything. Like whenever you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like uh, a little uncomfortable, look at it as like an ex- a feeling of excitement and you get to do something to grow. So it's a, it's a cool reframe just to look at it like that. Yeah. Just in terms of if somebody's listening here at home, at the gym, 
Maybe they're in a nine to five job. They want to start something new, business, any kind of creative venture, but they don't, they just don't know where to start. Obviously we talked about, it's probably better to start in your off hours, the 7 PM to 2 AM, just as a, you know, side hustle, as Gary Vee says. But if they don't have a business idea, they don't really know that first step to take. What's a piece of advice that you would give them or more of like a directive that you would give them as a step one to get started? I would start to figure out like, what do you, what do you enjoy doing? Like where are your strengths? Right. And then I'm, I'm a big fan of journaling and letting, like, I believe that we know most of the answers to like 99.9% of the questions that we ask ourselves that, you know, we think, oh my gosh, I have no clue what to do. Like we know deep down inside what to do. So the journaling process for me helps that come out. So I'll sit with a blank piece of paper. A lot of times, like if I'm really trying to figure out like, what do I do next? I'll just get like one or two blank sheets of computer paper. I won't, I won't actually use my journal because then it's tempting to get bored and go back and look at other stuff. And I'll sit in a room and it's a minimum of 28 minutes. So basically you force yourself to sit there, no distractions. And I ask a question at the top of the page and then just kind of start writing. And after about 28 minutes, that's when your brain gives up and says, okay, look, we're not going to go anywhere until this guy gets an answer. So it really digs deep and starts answering the question that you have. And then, so if you can make it to that 28th minute, generally you'll sit there for another couple hours. And so that's how I would start it. That might be a weird answer. Like now that I'm even saying it out loud, I, most people probably don't think about that, but looking back at everything I've done, that was one of the most important things I did when I was trying to figure out, Hey, you know, what should I do next? Like what type of job should I have or anything like that? But that would be my recommendation to start, you know, figure out what you really want to do. Like, don't, don't follow the money piece of it. Like let yourself answer the question of what would you really enjoy? And then if it's something you're great at, you know, the money piece of it will come and then read books, right? Like read a couple books, you know, the e-myth is a great way to start like learning about the different types of business owners, figuring out what you are. And then also understanding the, the power of processes. Like most of us, when we start a business, we know how to do everything, but we don't document it. And then it, that costs a lot of time down the road, like start doing that stuff in the very beginning. Totally. And one good way actually that I found that works is it, it could be hard for people to like create, you know, checklists or step-by-step processes. One easy way to do it is by literally just flipping on a screen recorder, just talking through like what you're actually doing. For me, I'm a learner. I'm like, I'm a visual learner like that. So it's easier for me to see how to do a process like that than it is to like go down a checklist and check stuff off with, with text. So that's an easy thing to do that you can just flip on the recorder. Your does it, it doesn't change your workflow at all. Maybe you're just talking out loud about what you're doing, but it, it sharpens the process and it's easy for people. It's, it's, you know, you're not changing anything. It's not extra work. You're already doing the work. Yeah. I love, I love that. That's how I delegate a lot of stuff that I catch myself doing over and over. I'm like, why am I still doing this? <laughs> totally. Who's had the most profound impact? If you had to point out one person that's whether it's been encouragement, like who's, who's had the most profound impact on your life? Such a challenging question because I mean, in my life it goes, you know, the right person is generally around at the right time. And so all these people have built on top of each other. I mean, some of the, probably some of the most recent and maybe some of the largest or some of the most profound impacts. I mean, Hal Elrod was huge miracle morning, the fact that, you know, we became good friends. I hired him as a coach for a couple of years. 
he had a really big impact on my life. And then, you know, Tony Robbins, I mean, you know, from back in the day, like having Tony Robbins tapes and, you know, driving around and like listening to him in my car and stuff and just constantly, you know, the amount of knowledge that he took and distilled in a way that, in the way that I needed to hear it at the time, it just, it really resonated with me. And then like we talked about last night, like date with destiny was a huge, huge event. I mean, it's a cool story. I mean, he sent you guys to Fiji. Yeah. You mind sharing that? So that was when Katie went to date with destiny and like, <laughs> we've got, <laughs> I got to get a picture of this. We've got Hank, their French bulldog, just looking in the door, like so confused of while we're recording this. But <laughs> he's just so mad that he's not in here with yeah, us. I got- so yeah, Katie went to date with destiny in 2000. Uh, I think it was 2014. And so Tony did, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, Tony will do intervention. So in the middle of this room of 2000 people, you know, he'll have somebody stand up and, and kind of go talk through whatever problem or issue that they're experiencing. And she didn't even raise her hand or anything. She was writing and he just walked over and like zoomed in on her and was like, yeah, why don't you go ahead and share? And so, you know, she starts shaking. She's all scared to death. I mean, I, I've been in that room. Like it is intimidating to stand up in front of 2000 people that are successful, that want to, you know, want to grow, want to learn. And, you know, just Tony Robbins is <laughs> yeah. you know, a little massive. intimidating yeah. too, right? So they're talking through these things, right? And, and he basically starts to, to find and tell her that, you know, she needs to treat herself a little bit better, you know, and, and be accepting that she deserves things in, in life. And so throughout about an hour, you know, of talking about this at the end of it, he says, okay, cool. I'm going to do something for you, but you have to do it within the next 10 days. And you have to say yes or no right now. So he goes, I'm going to send you and your boyfriend to Fiji, you know, my resort, all expenses paid. And immediately she's like, oh no. She's like, you can't do that to me. There's so many other people in the room that deserve it. Like you got to send somebody else. Like I don't deserve that. And he's like, I don't think you understand. (laughs) He's like, this is exactly what we're talking about. Yes or no. And she, and then, so she's like, okay, yes, of course, you know, I'm in. So yeah, like seven days later or something after she got back, we went, we, you know, we went over, we actually, we changed all of our plans. We went over Christmas and went to Fiji for like six days. And it was just, it was amazing. And so now as you experienced last night, like Katie, my fiance, now she won't do some things for herself. Like she's like, oh, I should get a manicure, but no, you know, it's expensive and I don't have time. I should work, like help my staff and stuff. So my response is, what would Tony say? <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, I should probably go. <laughs> I should get a manicure. Yeah. That's amazing. So what's next on the horizon for you? Obviously you're building Sequest. What's that vivid vision look like? And is there anything outside of Sequest that you're really excited about? Whether it's personal, obviously you're, you're getting married here in three yeah. weeks. So obviously that one's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Wedding in three weeks. That's exciting, uncomfortable. It's like all of those things mixed together. Right. <laughs> right. So like that, so that's going to be awesome in a couple of weeks here. And then, I mean, as far as Sequest and just kind of the horizon, I've really been paying attention from a business standpoint to not working in the business. Right. So it's delegate, duplicate, or delete is like kind of everything that goes on my list. I try to put it into one of those three categories. And so I've been really focused on empowering my team and my staff to be able to run this thing on their own. And they already do a great job. Like I went sailing for 10 days last summer and turned my phone off when I landed in St. Thomas. And then I turned it back on like the day we got, you know, back from the sailing trip, like nothing, like no phone on whatsoever and everything was great. So really empowering them through, you know, like figuring out what tools they need, what do they need to learn? What coaching do they need? So that now that business can run on its own because so many entrepreneurs start, and and I've done this in the, excuse me, in the past, 
they start a business and they are the business, right? Like they're the name, they're the one that's doing all the videos. They're the one that's out there selling. They're the one that's writing the book and coaching. And well, that's great. And it's an easy way to grow, right? Like people resonate with people as opposed to companies. So it's a faster way to grow, but now you're stuck in it. Right. And then when you hit burnout, it's going to be bad. So I'm really focused on that right now is empowering them and basically trying to make myself unnecessary within the company. And, you know, that's a big focus for us right now while still scaling extremely rapidly, you know, so we're at 15 now, our vivid vision is for 2019 is about 35 people and, you know, really good, healthy profit margins, really good recurring revenue, a very small number of clients that, you know, are people that we want to work with. So now I've created a business that people resonate with a brand and not Steven. So that's a, that's a huge thing for us. And then I don't know. And then, you know, after that, I'll own a marketing company that does really well and maybe do something else with some other businesses and, you know, help them grow for a, whatever, a percentage of ownership. And I don't know, I don't know exactly. So you, you did build the business revolution podcast. And I know we, before this, we were talking a little bit about it, but you've actually stopped recording episodes. So you mind going into why you started that and what kind of made you decide not to continue with it? So in the beginning of 2015, what's last year? 2016. Yeah. <laughs> so the beginning of 2016, I started a podcast and it was just kind of, I don't even remember where the idea came from. And then I was talking to Hal Elrod and he was like, oh yeah, dude, you got to start a podcast. Like it's going to be great and, and all this. And so I did my little journaling thing. I was like, all right, what do I want to get out of this if I'm going to do it? So, cause I told myself if I do it, I'm going to commit to it for a year because I'm really good at you know, being an entrepreneur and like doing something for a month and then not wanting to do it anymore. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'm going to commit to a year. So what do I want to get out of it? And some of the things that I wanted to get out of it was become a more effective communicator, be able to just kind of add another skill. So, I mean, as you know, like interviewing is not easy. I mean, you have to really be on top of it to be a good interviewer. So getting that skill and then the connections, right? Like it was a really good excuse for me to reach out to people that, that normally wouldn't talk to me and, <laughs> exactly. then, and then I can get them you know, on a show for an hour. So, and then just everything that I learned, you know, from my guest was, was amazing. So I got a ton out of it. You know, we had a good following. I mean, I think we had like 13 to 15,000 downloads a month, which, you know, is no, you know, it's no Jordan art of charm, but <laughs> right. it was still really cool. Like we never pushed it. We never, never really marketed it or anything like that because that wasn't the goal, right? The goal was not to build a list or anything like that. So I didn't focus on it. And then earlier this year, I started paying attention to how much time we were spending on the podcast. And then I started asking the question of, is that really the best use of my time? Is that in alignment with what my current goals are? And so over the course of a couple of weeks of asking those questions, the answer was no. And so I got, I accomplished everything that I wanted to with it from what I heard and the feedback I got, I, I was able to help a lot of people, but it was no longer in alignment with our goals. So I shut it down. Still great episodes though. A lot of great guests still in iTunes. So I yeah. highly recommend going and listen to some episodes, even though there's not going to be any new ones coming out. There's still a lot of gold in there. Yeah. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Obviously with being the fail on podcast, we like to push people outside their comfort zones and not just, obviously we have, you've created a lot of value here and a lot of insp- your story is inspirational because you went from 100K in debt to to creating a beautiful business now that you're trying to work on rather than in. So for people that listen to this, this is all about consuming great content, but also 
going out in the real world and actually taking action and doing stuff. So what we like to do is always have the guests provide a challenge that the listeners can go do in the real world to actually get outside their comfort zone and push their limits a little bit and then report back on. So what would be a challenge that the listeners as well as myself could go do to push your comfort zones a little bit? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I would say, again, going back to some of the stuff we've talked about, like we know the things that we need to do. We just don't always want to do them because they're uncomfortable. So, I mean, a challenge kind of as I try to piece this together real quick, right? like <laughs> um, I didn't come prepared for this one. So, so, okay. So if you know what it is that you want to do, right? Like if you know, you want to start a business and you know, maybe, you know, the industry that you want to start in or something like that, like what's the next thing that you need to do in order to, to like get educated about that. So like a, a thought that comes to mind would be like, reach out to somebody else that owns a business like that. And that's going to be really uncomfortable for most people. So once you kind of figure out what it is that you want to do next, my challenge to you would be write down the top three most uncomfortable things that you know you should do in order to you know start that business or take that next step and then do them. I can't remember who says it. It's a woman, really high level coach, like just awesome, awesome lady, but I can't remember her name. She has something that where when she doesn't know exactly what to do next, she counts down from five. So she goes five, four, three, two, one, action. So write down the three things that are the most uncomfortable thing that you could do and count down five, four, three, two, one, and just take action on the first one immediately. And then as soon as you take action on it, you'll realize that it's really not that big of a deal anyway. But yeah, write down those three most uncomfortable things that you know you need to do next. Count down and do them. Yeah, count down and do them. And then post it in the, yeah, you know, in exactly. the group or however people are going to communicate. Exactly. Love it. All right, man. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but obviously thanks for hosting us at your home and thanks for having us last night. It's been a pleasure and it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, man, Rob. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Cool. Next time, man. Cool. All right. So you can find Stephen at Stephen M. Chris on Twitter. That's at Stephen M. Chris. And of course, for that spelling, along with all the links and resources Stephen and I discuss, including more information on his company, that can all be found at the page we created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 032. And next week, we have a good one. We're sitting down with my good buddy, Craig Clemens. Craig's without a doubt one of the best direct response copywriters in the world. His copywriting is responsible for over $1 billion in sales, billion with a B, and he is currently the co-founder of Golden Hippo Media. He got to start writing copy for Eben Pagan's offer, Double Your Dating, which he helped grow to over $20 million per year. And since then, he has co-founded three different eight-figure businesses in just the last five years, and all in diverse industries as well, nutrition, cosmetics, and dating advice. And in this episode, Craig shares the highs and lows of breaking into the digital advertising space, where he found his mentorship and his direction, and much, much more. You don't want to miss it. And if the podcast is providing value to your life, please email me at rob at failon.com and simply let me know what your biggest takeaway from this episode is. And you know, if you want to share what your biggest struggle is getting started with your business or growing your business, I would love to hear that as well. And as I continue to build Failon with the goal of helping employees become entrepreneurs to create absolute freedom, I'd be really grateful for just a couple of things that are so small, but matter so much to me. Subscribing to the podcast takes a single click and helps the show get found by more people. And when more people can find the show, it means it can help more people, which means in return by simply subscribing and rating and reviewing, you are helping more people by just doing that. So to subscribe and rate and review the podcast, really easy. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. 
That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.